The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Our God and Father in heaven, it is a delight to know that I do not stand here in my own strength. For, Lord, I have nothing to tell anyone here. But, Lord, you have good news for us in your word. And today we have good news about prayer that we can apply this to our lives. So, God, I pray that you would be active in assisting me as I proclaim your good news. And I pray that you would be active by your Holy Spirit in helping to receive the word into the ears that are and the people here gathered this morning. Lord, we thank you for your grace that you have already shown us. We pray that you would continue to show us much grace through the day. In Christ's precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Martin Luther once said, To be Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. And this is true. And our Christian lives should be lived in such a manner that prayer is as second nature as inhaling and exhaling air. But honestly, let's face it, that's not the way most of us live. Am I right? We all fall short in the area of prayer. We instead tend to treat God like some kind of a cosmic vending machine who will supply whatever we want, whenever we want it, and that's the only times that we come to approach Him. And I think that for most of us, prayer is virtually ignored until needs arise in our life that forces us to turn our attention to call out to God. John Owachenkwa, who is uh, the author of one of the little Nine Marks books, the one on prayer. He picks up on Martin Luther's quote about prayer being like breathing, and he says, We don't treat prayer like breathing. Instead, we treat it like prescription medication, meant to rid uh, rid us of an infection. And once the infection is gone, so is the frequency and fervency of our prayers. So we're gathered together this morning for the purpose of learning more about prayer. And I personally believe that prayer is probably the most overlooked and underappreciated part of the life of our church members. And I will freely admit that I am not a glowing example of what it looks like to have a consistent and faithful and strong prayer life. Much of my desire to teach on this right now is selfish and that I know I personally need much growth in this area. This is an area that deserves much attention and where all of us, I believe, need much instruction. Robert Murray McShane once said, A man is what he is on his knees before God, and he is nothing more. Martin Lloyd-Jones argued that prayer is beyond any question the highest activity of the human soul. Man is at his greatest and at his highest when he is on his knees and face-to-face with God. Prayerlessness is foolishness. Prayerlessness is pridefulness. Prayerlessness is a form of practical atheism whereby we profess that we need God with our mouths on a Sunday, but then the rest of the week we live like we have life under control, and thank you God, but I really just don't need your help. In short, prayerlessness is sin. And I think it would be really easy for me to stand up here this morning and explain over the next two sessions all of the ways that we are falling short. And I think that I could preach sermons in such a way that many people would walk away feeling deeply guilty and really inadequate and meager in soul. However, that is not the goal of our time together this morning. 
It is not my aim to guilt you into praying more. Instead, I am going to do my best this morning to display for you the absolute magnificence of the gift that we call prayer. And I want you to behold the manifold kindness of God in allowing us to speak to him. He lets us talk to him and he doesn't destroy us that very moment. Or specifically, I want you to once again be confronted with the person to whom we pray. Prayer in and of itself is not a treasure. But prayer is the way that we cherish and enjoy our true treasure, the one satisfactory treasure of the universe, God himself. So if you remember back on October 14th of 2012, I assume many of you saw the video of the man named Felix Bumgartner who jumped from space. Do you guys remember that video? He went up in like this balloon and it pulled a capsule up literally to the edge of space, 128,100 feet, where the balloon would no longer rise. It was that far into the, the atmosphere. And then they, they filmed him. He had a helmet cam on and he stepped out of the capsule holding on like this, looking down at the earth. And the video shows the entire circumference of the globe. He's looking down at our planet from space. And then he jumped. And he jumped and he parachuted safely and perfectly all the way down to the ground. And it was beautiful watching from his camera. I think it took like 11 minutes for the entirety of his fall and then the parachute coming out and bringing him safely down to earth. It was just phenomenal to watch. But our approach this morning is going to be something like what we saw in the video footage of that man. We're going to begin by, although hopefully less jarring than what he did, I remember watching it, just like my entire gut's shrinking. Um, but this morning what we're going to do is we're going to begin by looking at the big picture of prayer. What is it? What do we need to understand about it? What are its theological underpinnings? And what do we mean when we talk about the discipline of the Christian life that we call prayer? And then we're going to get more specific details in our second session about the practice of prayer. How do we operate in prayer? What are some of the specific ways that we should pray? And then thirdly, we're going to get all the way down to the ground and examine a biblical prayer that Christ gave to the disciples. And Mike is going to teach us how the Lord's Prayer is a model for the way in which we are called to pray in our daily lives. Perhaps it's an easy way to break it down to look at it something like this. First, what is prayer? And then what is the content of prayer? And then thirdly, the how-tos of prayer. And then, of course, after that, we're going to have a sweet hour of prayer where we do call out together before the Lord for the needs that are currently arising here. So what exactly is prayer? Even though my four-year-old son knows even my four-year-old son knows what prayer is when you ask him. He would say, it's just talking to God. And that's not wrong, but we want to dig a little bit deeper today and see at its roots what is the gift of prayer. How does it work? And in order to answer these questions, we're going to consider the role of each person in the Trinity, of the Trinity in relationship to prayer. So beginning with the Father, we're going to see that we pray to our Sovereign Father. There are these two seemingly paradoxical truths that exist that we see presented in Scripture. First, we see that God is absolutely, unequivocally sovereign over all things, and that he ordains whatsoever comes to pass. Secondly, we see that God responds to us. He responds to our prayers. He listens to them, he hears them, and he answers them. Now, do you see the dilemma 
God does indeed call out the end from the beginning, as it says in Isaiah 46.10. God engineered and planned and set forth every single detail of history down to the very intricate details of determining the outcome of what we tend to view as random chance. For example... Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33, the end of this chapter that's all about the sovereignty of God there in the middle of the book of Proverbs says, the dice are thrown in the lap and every decision is from the Lord. It's not random, it's not luck, it's not chance, it was by God's sovereign plan and design. As R.C. Sproul often said, there is not a single maverick molecule in the entire universe. So if that's true, if that's true that God does orchestrate all that comes to pass, then does God actually do anything with my prayers? He already decided what's going to happen. He's already called out the end from the beginning, so isn't he simply going to do whatever he wants to do, whether I pray or not? If so, what am I doing here? Why am I getting on my knees? Why do we call out to him before we we eat or before we preach or any of these other things? Didn't Jesus also say, you have not because you ask not? Does not this indicate to us that our lack of prayer was actually the cause of God's inaction in supplying a need? In other words, isn't Jesus declaring to the disciples at that moment that our prayers actually do change things? James chapter 5, verse 16 says, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Clearly this means that our prayers are actually producing some kind of change beyond our natural sphere of influence, before our, but beyond our natural human capabilities. I could pray for something that I will never see on the other side of the planet, and God can answer that prayer outside of me. Therefore, we are saying God does indeed change things based upon our prayer. So how do we bridge the paradox of the sovereignty of God and the fact that prayer actually works? Well, please understand, this is not merely a theological thought exercise. The answer to the question that I'm asking you right now helps to underline the glorious nature of God's love for us in prayer. We get to see what God was actually doing by designing this gift of prayer. The bridging of these two seemingly opposite truths show you God's love for you. So here's our answer. God did ordain your prayers. He ordained not only all the things that are going on around you, he ordained the fact that you would also pray about those things, and he ordained the outcome and the answer to those prayers. Please understand, you were literally factored in to his grand plan of the unfolding mysteries of the universe. God has actually included us in his work in ways that he did not have to, which is just very consistent with the nature of God, allowing us to be involved in proclaiming the gospel, in evangelism. I can't change a human heart, but God can. So why am I telling people? Why doesn't God do that himself? Because he graciously and lovingly includes us in the unraveling of his mysterious plan that he is revealing as he builds his kingdom here on earth. So this is the first thing that should cause us to be absolutely overwhelmed at the gracious gift of prayer. The fact that God himself would desire and give us the gift and ability to be included in this way is marvelous beyond comprehension because you and I are incapable of doing anything in terms of lasting, significant, eternal change. But through prayer, God has given us the gift of being able to be engaged in ways far beyond what we can even imagine. There are a few faulty understandings that exist in terms of prayer that we need to address right now in relation to the Father. First of all, there's the belief that God needs our direction 
in prayer. He somehow can't really know exactly what we need unless we tell him what we need. First, God doesn't need us to tell him what's going on in our lives. He is not uncertain about what to do next. He is not ignorant of our needs. God did not create prayer because he is forgetful and he needs you to remind him. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 8, Jesus said, Your father knows what you need before you ask him. So why ask him? We see that even though God knows our needs, he wants us to confide our trials in him, to confide our troubles in him. First Peter chapter 5, verse 7 tells us that we are to cast all of our anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for us. So our casting on him is a way of him caring for us. So why does God want me to tell him these things if he already knows? God is not uninformed. He is not distracted. He does not need to be reminded. Rather, prayer exists because God delights in communing with us. There is a relational aspect of prayer that goes way beyond some kind of antiquated data upload to heaven. God is not just needing more information. It's like when my son's feelings are really hurt. And I've seen what's taken place. I know all of the necessary information. I know exactly what was said or what was done that hurt his feelings. And then he comes over to me sad and near crying. And he hugs me. And he just wants to tell me what's going on. I don't need him to tell me. But I delight in comforting him. I delight in leading him and giving him direction and encouraging him. So we have to understand that God delights in us, which is also very consistent with what we see taking place throughout all of scriptural history. That God, from the time of the garden, has been working throughout all history to bring a people for himself. We see in Revelation chapter 21 verse 3 that the end result of all of this is that the dwelling place of God will be with man. That is the heart of God, that the dwelling place that he would have would be with us, which would be mind-boggling. That should blow our minds. And the fact of the matter is that prayer is a way for us to experience that now, even though we are not present with him physically, we are with him spiritually. So I want to, I want to see here that prayer is something that God enjoys to do with us. That should make us absolutely amazed. Have you ever studied any other religion? Their gods don't care. They're they're just interested for selfish reasons in prayers and supplications and offerings. Our God enjoys and delights in being with us. Proverbs 15, 18 says, The prayer of the upright is his delight. God delights in our prayers. To me, as I was studying that, I stopped at that verse and I just had to stop for a while and ask the question to myself, do I really believe that? Do I really believe that when I am praying, God is desirous and interested in hearing from me? Because I know how unworthy and uninteresting I probably am in the scope of all of human history. God did not just save us to ignore us. He has purchased a people for his own possession. And he didn't save any of us because we are shining bright and glorious. And he was like, I just need that guy on my team. And this should be incomprehensible that God actually delights in us in any way. But the fact that he desires to commune with with us on a regular basis, he enjoys us. He finds pleasure in us when we praise him or confess to him or seek his direction or ask for his intervention in our circumstances. Prayer is not some kind of emotionless, cold, sterile reproduction of some formula. It is designed to be a vibrant, joyful communication between creature and creator. 
Secondly, God does not need our permission to do anything. There's this modern notion that's kind of like the idea that God is some kind of a a junkyard dog on a chain and your prayer is basically unhinging him so he can go do your bidding. Well, that's not what prayer is like from the scriptural perspective. God did not create prayer because he is begrudging of us. He doesn't want to bless us. He's unwilling to give to us or help us unless we beg and plead. That is a very pagan notion of prayer. Now, we don't have much time to explore this today, but I will simply say that the posture of God is always leaning down with an eager ear to hear his children. So why do we pray? Because when God does use our prayers to change things, God lovingly is involving us in his work, and when we see his answers to our prayers, it builds our faith and it displays God's glory to everyone who is around us. For example... The prophet Daniel, I've been reading and thinking about Daniel a lot lately. And if you, as you read that book, you will see that this book is filled with prayer. And simultaneously, this book is filled with all sorts of information and detail about power and dominion and spiritual realms. And in the midst of that, the only way that we tend to be involved in that entire enterprise is through prayer. And Daniel is involved because Daniel is a man of prayer. And we see what goes on in the life of Daniel as he is out, prayer is literally outlawed, and he goes outside, opens the window, and he prays publicly so that everybody can see what he's doing. He is not hiding his devotion to God. And for that, for that visible out display of, uh, of prayer to the, the one God who can hear him, He was taken and he was thrown into a den of starving lions. Now, although the text does not say that Daniel was praying not to be eaten, I don't think it's a stretch to say that this kind of man of prayer was calling out to God as he was being thrown in and overnight as he was staying there with those lions. And in the morning, he was unharmed and King Darius saw and made a proclamation to the entire kingdom about what was going on with Daniel. And he knew this man is a man who prays to that God. And listen to the announcement that this unsaved, unregenerate, pagan king made to his kingdom. He says, I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers, he rescues, he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. This is an example of, this man does not see Daniel. This man man does not see the work and the effort of Daniel. He sees the glory of God through the answered prayer of Daniel. It is expanding his perspective of who this God is to whom Daniel is praying. This is a big ask from God. This is contrary to the course of nature. Starving lions do not normally ignore fresh people meat when they are thrown into that hole or whatever it was. This is a divine act of intervention that only God can do. This kind of answer from God is one of the many ways that God built Daniel's faith also. That he was strengthening Daniel, and he was also making his own glory made known to the world. But what about when God does not answer in the affirmative? Last spring, I preached through the glorious Old Testament prophet book of Habakkuk. 
In it, the prophet called out to God in concern about the direction of his country and the direction of Judah. He saw that things were going awry and that people were moving away from the direction of reformation that had taken place under King Josiah. And he was frustrated and annoyed by the fact that so many people were rebelling against God. And he was frustrated because the new king was literally killing prophets. And he prays to God, hoping that God will change the course of the nation. And God answered him, in a way that he rarely answered anyone throughout all of human history. He answered him verbally, and what he responds to him is essentially boiled down into the statement, Habakkuk, if you think it's bad now, it is going to get much, much worse. It was the exact opposite answer from what Habakkuk actually wanted God to say. He did the exact opposite thing from what Habakkuk wanted him to do. Instead of cleaning out all the bad guys there in Judea, in Judah, instead he sent the Babylonians, the worst people in the world, to come down and attack them. He's trying to clean up a dirty floor with an even filthier mop. Habakkuk is confused. He doesn't understand. So Habakkuk prays again in absolute confusion in chapter 2. And he calls out to God, desiring that God would stop this and do something different than this. And God again responds to him. And in the end, God said no to Habakkuk's request. But by the end of the book, when you get to chapter 3, Habakkuk had come to understand that God's plans were better than his own, even if he didn't understand how. So he closes out his entire book with these words. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flocks be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Just pause for a second. That is literally every source of food for the Jewish people that existed. He says, even if all of that sustenance is gone, wiped away from the face of the earth, then he continues in verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. This reveals the wisdom of God and his design for prayer. Because when God answers his people in the affirmative, like he did with Daniel, it shows the wisdom and power and love of God, and it builds up our faith. But when God says no, it also shows God's wisdom and love and power, and it also builds up our faith. If we are unwilling to be thankful and to rejoice in the Lord, even when he says no to our prayers, then we're not actually trusting God. We are not believing that he is the one who is in charge and doing what is right. When we pray faithfully and fervently, God will often use those prayers not to change our circumstances, but to change our vision of God. He is changing us through these prayers. God is using these instances to show us that God's plan is a lot bigger than our small desires. He is revealing that our sanctification is of greater importance than our comfort and ultimately that his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts now i could be wrong but i i would guess that the disciples were praying when jesus was arrested in the garden now it doesn't mention this so i i'm not trying to do damage to the text i don't think i am but believing that these men are regenerate saved people who loved Jesus as their leader and they believed he was the Messiah, I believe they were probably praying when Judas walked into that garden 
and kissed Jesus and betrayed him. And then all these people were being arrested. I believe that as they were running away and they were hiding in the bushes and trying to escape from the soldiers, I believe that they were probably praying that Jesus would be set free. I believe that when Peter went into that courtyard and was trying to conceal who he was and he was eventually found out and and denied Christ, I believe he was probably silently under his breath praying, God, don't let this happen. Don't let this happen. Don't let this happen. I believe knowing that Mary was a godly woman who prayed for Jesus before he was even born, I believe that while she was at the foot of that cross, she was probably with the heart of a mother and with the heart of a disciple praying, God, please let him come down from that cross and let him somehow recover from these terrible physical wounds that he's encountered. I believe they were probably praying those things, but thank God that God said no. God said no because he knew what they wanted, their desire, even though they were significant and very real human emotions, they were leading them to ask in that time, if they were doing it, for things that were unhelpful to the kingdom and it would ultimately undermine the entire plan of human redemption. So when we talk about prayer, we must understand that God is always doing something. That even in the midst of the worst crazy circumstances that hurt Even in the midst of human suffering, even in the midst of the persecution of the church, God knows what he is doing. And although we continue to pray, and we continue to pray, and we continue to pray, oftentimes God is using the answer of no or not yet for the purpose of growing our faith and changing us as we see over time that his way truly was better than our way. I can tell you a thousand examples from my own life but I I feel that that would be a better time for a personal conversation. But we can see, and I believe you would say the same thing if you were trusting in Christ, that you've prayed for things in the past, truly desirous that they would take place, but you now are saying, thank you, God, that I didn't marry that person. Thank you, God, that you did not allow this to take place in my life. Thank you, God, whatever it might be, that that didn't happen. And praise God, he knew better. And praise God that even though you might have been frustrated for a time, his ways are always best. God the Father designed prayer to be a tool. It was used as a tool to build us up, to build our faith and trust in Him. And whenever He answers yes or whenever He answers no, prayer always teaches us to trust Him. Prayer always teaches us that He is sovereign and in control. And God doesn't need it. He didn't give it to us because He was desperate for us to have it. He gave it to us as a gift because it is something that is of great value for us. God the Father is not the only member, however, of the Trinity who is involved in our prayer lives. Which brings us now to our second point of the morning, prayer in the name of Jesus. Why does God listen to our prayers? Why is it that he hears us? A thrice holy God, the one holy being of the universe, actually listens to sinners like us? The answer is that it's only because of the gospel. At its most basic The result of sin is separation from God. And as sinners, all of us have been separated from Him. God does not find pleasure in us. He does not find pleasure in the sinner. He is not well pleased in us. Psalm 711 says, God is angry with the wicked every day. We don't get a day off from the anger of God when we are walking in our rebellion against Him, which is the natural state of our lives from the time we are born. But at the baptism of Jesus, God split open the sky, and He said of this person, this is my beloved Son, and don't overlook the fact that He said, in whom I am well pleased. There is pleasure 
in him. The love that God shared with the Trinity is infinite and it is eternal. It cannot increase, it cannot expand, it cannot be enlarged, it cannot grow over time. God's love for the other members of the Trinity is static and has always been infinite from the infinite reaches of eternity past. And it will never change in eternity future. So again, why would God listen to us? Well, this is where the doctrine of union with Christ is so vital to the understanding of prayer. If you are saved, you are in Christ. One of my all-time favorite passages in Scripture is John chapter 15, the first especially 11 verses. Jesus gives, in my view, the most intimate of all of the I Am statements. I am the vine, you are the branches. Jesus uses this metaphor to depict what union with Christ actually looks like. Please understand, this concept of mutual abiding that runs through the book of John and 1 John is a very bizarre one. It's very challenging for us to comprehend it because there's literally nothing in the entire physical universe that operates the way that union with Christ does. You do not exist outside and surrounding something and inside of it and being surrounded by it at the same time. Abide in me and I in you. That's not the way that things actually work in the physical human created plane. But what we see taking place is the command to abide in me and I in you. And so what he's displaying here for us is the most intimate depiction that we can find in all of the metaphors of Scripture of what it looks like to actually abide in him while he abides in us. What does that mean? How does that look? What exactly is taking place? He gives the picture of how a vine is, full, uh, is pushing life into the branch. Apart from me, you can do nothing, he says. I have occasionally, throughout my marriage, purchased... Uh, flowers for my wife. I think I'm going to stop doing that. She's not up here, right? I'm, I think I'm going to stop doing that. And the reason is they last like a week if my kids don't pick the petals off of them and then they die. And the reason is they have been removed from their source of life. They have been removed from the vine from which they came. Now, I'm not a horticulturalist. I don't think I'm probably saying all the terms correctly, but the point is very simple. It needs to be connected to the root system. It needs to be connected to the base in order to continue to live and to grow and to flower and to bud. Instead, I think I will do what uh, the Angelus family did so graciously for us. Where are the Angeluses here still? Where are they at? Uh, Jay has graciously given me... He's outside. Uh, Jay and uh, Christian, they gave us uh, an orchid plant, and that was three years ago, and it's getting ready to flower again. What's the difference? One of them has a life still flowing into it. Even though the flowers and petals fall off for a season, it continues to grow, and it continues every year to have more flowers and more fruit. Why? Because the life of the, the plant is actually flowing into it. I think it's very important that we see this picture of Christ and really think about how that relates to our life with Jesus. Jesus displays what it looks like to abide in him, to remain in him, to find spiritual strength in him, to rest in him, to recognize that all of our growth and all of our fruit actually originates from him. So when Jesus gave this metaphor to the disciples, it was part of a long series of conversations he was having the night that he was betrayed. One of the themes of that evening was certainly the theme of prayer. In John chapter 14, verse 13 through 14, Jesus said, Whatever you ask in my name... This I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. In John 16, 23, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. 
Until now, you have asked nothing in my name, and you will receive that your joy may be full. The entire chapter of John 17 is then Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane praying for the disciples and, by extension, as he says, praying for all those who would be saved through their teaching. That means if you're in Christ, he was praying there for you. He was, he had you, literally, going through his prayer life, out of his physical mouth, in that garden. Although that shouldn't be surprising because the Bible says he still intercedes for us. Now, there are many examples, especially in chapter 16, that I didn't mention about the focus of prayer in the life of Christ that night. But all of the occasions where he mentions prayer, all of the occasions where he commands or teaches or explains to the disciples how to pray, we are told always to do it in his name. But all of this revolves around what he is talking about in John chapter 15 when he talks about abiding in Christ. In John 15 verse 7, Jesus said, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So the prerequisite for the answered prayer, in this verse at least, is abiding in Christ. Do you want your prayers answered? Then what needs to come first? Abiding in Christ. Please follow the argument that John 15 that I'm making here from this text. Abiding in Christ produces fruit. Abiding in Christ results in answered prayer. But do not miss the fact that moments later in verse 16, Jesus says, You did not choose me, but I chose and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So here you can see that abiding in Christ and asking in his name are paralleled by Jesus. They mean the same thing. Now there have been millions of strings of words that have been strung together by millions of different people and they end their little words with, in the name of Jesus, amen, that are not prayers. There are many people who have prayed a myriad of prayers that will have that tag at the end, in Jesus' name, amen. But they're not actually praying in Jesus' name. Because prayer in the name of Jesus includes, as part of its meaning, prayer while abiding in Christ. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 18, Jesus declares that all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. And we have to see that that is the cause for which he can say, go into the, all the world and make disciples of every nation. But what we see is that in heaven and on earth and under the earth, Jesus has authority. And this power and authority is what we are calling upon when we pray in the name of Jesus. When we declare that this is in his name, we are saying, by his authority. But we only have the right to do this because we have been made one with Christ. God is accepting us because we are found in him. Or as Colossians 3 puts it, we are hidden with Christ in God. So when God hears me asking, he is seeing me, but he is seeing me clothed in the righteousness of his own son. He is saying, in you I am well pleased. Well, he shouldn't be pleased because of the way I've lived my life, but he is pleased with me because I have been covered by the grace of Christ and I am abiding in him and dwelling within Christ. And so when he sees me, he sees me in the name and the authority and the person of his own son. I love the words of John Newton. In his song, he says, "'Tis he instead of me is seen when I approach to God. I walk up, but God is actually seeing 
his son. Asking in the name of Christ means that the position of our hearts are abiding in Christ, trusting in Christ, seeking the glory of Christ. This is why if someone is truly abiding in Jesus, then prayer will truly then become like breathing. As we fix our eyes on Jesus, any stimuli that comes into your life in from this earth will always produce a nudge toward the throne of God, not away from it if your eyes are fixed on him. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. He says, hearts abiding in Christ send forth supplications, which are requests from God, as fires send out flames and sparks. If you're truly abiding in Christ, that prayer is just going up, just like a flame is producing all that heat and spark and all those little embers that fly away. That's what your prayer is like. It's a natural result of seeing and savoring the person of God. Now, this kind of abiding in Christ not only is the springboard that launches us towards prayer, it should also shape the content of our prayers. One of my friends and former professors always closes his prayers by saying, in the name of Jesus and for his sake we pray. Amen. If we are asking in the name of Jesus, we are also asking for the sake of Jesus, for his kingdom to expand. We are seeking his glory above our own desires. We are praying for his authority but never outside of his interests. Now, I wish that we had time to explore in depth the manner in which the Son prays for us, but today it will have to suffice to say that Jesus did pray for us in the garden, and Jesus does continue to pray for us in intercession, as we see in Hebrews chapter 7, 25. So we see that we are praying to our sovereign God in the name and authority of our Savior, the Son, and now we will see how we pray by the Holy Spirit. Perhaps one of the most misunderstood aspects of prayer is that praying in the Holy Spirit is part of the Christian life. One of, on the one hand, you have the people who are believing that this is uh, an overly charismatic, ecstatic, sometimes even bombastic event that takes place. For those people, praying in the Spirit is often thought to be the same thing as praying in tongues. I grew up in a church that would believe that praying in the Spirit meant that you were speaking in some kind of a heavenly prayer language. Unfortunately, almost all the Christians who believe this way, almost all the Christians who don't believe this way, who don't fit into that theological framework, rather, those people have an understanding of praying that prayer in the Spirit boils down to a single thought. What does it mean when you pray in the Spirit? I'm not Pentecostal. And there's a nervousness that overcomes them. I'm not Pentecostal. Well, what is it? What does it mean when the scripture tells us in Ephesians chapter 6.18 that we are called to pray at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication? Well, for those interested in this extensive study uh, of this question, I really encourage you to to look into Martin Lloyd-Jones. He studied this and has a lot of material on this question. He does a masterful work on the subject. Lloyd-Jones contrasts praying in the spirit with what we should naturally think is its opposite, praying in the flesh. That means praying within our own abilities and praying within our own power and for our own glory or with an unsubmissive, selfish attitude. On the contrary, to pray in the Spirit means that we actively submit ourselves to God's will at the outset of our prayer. We go saying, God, whatever your will is, may that be done. It is an intentional focus on the power of God, knowing that He always works for His glory and our good. Finally, We boldly make a request. It means that we can go before God and we can declare with all confidence 
God, I need you to do this for me. Lloyd-Jones draws a clear distinction between demanding and requesting, though. And I think this is an important distinction to make for us. Do not claim, he says. Do not demand, he says. Let your requests be made known. Let them come from your own heart. God will understand. But we have no right to demand even good, such as revival. Some Christians are tending to do so at this present time, and I think even more now. He says, pray urgently. Plead. Use all scriptural argument. Use all the promises. But do not demand of God. Do not claim. Never let the terminology of claiming or demanding be used among us. I think that most of us are probably very familiar with Romans 8.28. And we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. But we do not know what is directly preceding that. Or at least we don't pay close attention. Paul writes, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Weakness is what he describes us as when we don't know how we're supposed to pray. But he says, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, the Spirit helps us. He helps us in our prayers. That should be encouraging to you. Are there times when you just don't know how to pray? Where the circumstances are so confusing, you don't know what outcome you should be hoping for? You don't know what would glorify God most? You don't know what decision to make because there are two seemingly good options on the table and God has not given you clarity about which one to accept. Are there occasions like that where you just come to God in absolute confusion? Or what about when you don't know what to pray because you're filled with grief? When a child is sick or has died or somebody that you love has been diagnosed with terminal cancer or many other things that could come into your life that are challenging you to the core of who you are and you know God is good and you know that God is loving and you know that His will is perfect, but you come saying, I don't even know how to pray right now. Is it not consistent with the grace of God that He doesn't leave us on our own? We don't get saved without His work. He does that. We don't get sanctified without His work. We see that earlier. We reread it without Him, without Christ. You cannot produce fruit. He's the one that glorifies us at our death. We just do the dying part. (laughs) And by the indwelling spirit, he even ensures that the muddled and unclear prayers of his elect people are delivered rightly to the Father. Now, there's a man in our church who's from India. He's unfortunately not able to be here today. If he was, I would encourage everyone to talk to him. It's a fascinating testimony of how God saved him out of the religion of Hinduism. And on Thursday, I had a a dinner with he and his wife. His wife is from here in the United States, and she traveled back with him. They spent a good amount of time just recently in India, and they were telling me more and more about, I just have a blind spot for a lot of what's going on in Hinduism. I I don't know much about that world. And he was explaining to me his former religion. And there's a temple in his hometown. I believe it's the temple to Shiva. He talked about several. I think the one that he was talking about was Shiva, where the history, the story of this temple is that this false god had at one point traveled from one part of india to another and took a nap on this rock and so that that was his pillow so they built a grand cathedral around it, this big temple and now that is where they go to worship and there he showed me pictures there are like cows in the temple that are 
walking around and the people are going and worshiping around these these cows that are present and have been dedicated to that place. I think most of us in the West have a difficult time understanding what a temple is. I don't think we get it. We have 2,000 years of Christian-influenced culture that has brought us to the point where we are today that when we hear the word temple, we have no concept of what that actually means. And a temple is very significant in terms of religion. A temple is the place where you go to encounter God. That is the place you go to access God. That is the place you go to speak to or make requests of the God. And that is where you pray. That is where the God is supposed to hear you. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, we read, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? Now here he's making an argument against sexual immorality, but please understand the point, the underlying reality that he's revealing to us here. If you are saved, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Do not overlook that grace of God, that he has given you the gift of prayer that cannot be stripped away from you. It cannot be taken away. If somebody believes in a religion where you must go to a specific location, a temple, you can be barred from that by just simply getting put in jail. And they can keep you away from communicating to your deity. One of the great interesting things that you'll read if you read through Roman history, especially Julius Caesar's uh, invasion of Roman Britain, uh, before it was Roman Britain and into the Britons, they were terrified. His army was terrified to go across into Britain because they didn't believe their gods could cross the water into Britain. And if they leave that place, what if we get captured? And what if they keep us there? We can't talk to our gods. So Julius Caesar was pretty brilliant. He created the first landing craft, and they just rolled their, their chariots right off into the sand, killed a bunch of people, and got back on and came back and declared it a victory and claimed they won. My point being that our understanding of God needs to be that God is with you. And God is in you. And wherever you go, that is the place where the temple of God exists. Because you are that temple, the dwelling place of the Spirit. Do you see how great that is? Do you recognize how joyful that is? I don't think we usually do. In fact, I think we often see the commands that apply to this very issue as a burden rather than a blessing. Let me explain how. I have taught many times from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, when it says that we are called to pray without ceasing. And the response of people in my studies has always been every occasion that is just so difficult. How could I do that? Now, that is probably because I have taught it very poorly. They feel inadequate. They feel like that's a mountain that's just too high to climb. Pray without ever stopping. But do you know what I've never heard anyone say? I've, I've taught this probably a dozen times over the course of the last dozen years. And I've never, ever, on any occasion, ever heard anyone say, myself included, praise God for his kindness. I've never seen anyone fall on their face and say, are you telling me that God will never leave me or forsake me? That literally everywhere I am, I can pray in that moment? They see this as a command that is burdensome rather than a command that is freeing. That is freedom from all of the limitations that we have. That every other religion kind of promotes and we have Christ accessible to us because the Spirit of God is in us. Do you see that when you wake up in the morning, you are on your face, on your pillow? You don't even have to roll over and you can communicate with the God of the universe. Most people wouldn't come to this place without combing their hair or making themselves presentable. God doesn't care. He sees you everywhere. He is with you always. He wants to hear from you at all times. He is accessible for us. And the gift of prayer is only going to be precious to you if God is precious to you. 
If your cares are more strongly tied to the things of this world, then prayer will never be a priority. But if we see God as truly satisfying, then our desire will be to utilize this access that we have to God constantly. So let's quickly round up what we've learned so far this morning. God the Father sovereignly and lovingly granted us the gift of prayer, even though we are unworthy to receive it. And we are permitted into his presence because we have been united with Christ and we are covered with his righteousness and we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit in whose power we pray. So let's make it our aim to raise up our prayers regularly, consistently and faithfully to the sovereign father in the authority and name of the son by the power of the Holy Spirit, all for the glory of our God, who is three in one. Let's pray. Lord, even as I have preached this, I am brought to conviction that I am just... I view you so minimally. And this gift of prayer I overlook so often and so cavalierly, considering myself to be able to be capable of things that I cannot do without you. Lord, help us, each one in this room, to know that we have no ability to accomplish your will apart from your work. So God, please work in us. Give us strength for the task. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We are going to take...